Amen. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Thank you, Amy. Appreciate that so much. Little ones through grade four can be dismissed at this time if you'd like them to be in age-appropriate service. I'd just take a minute that, uh, you know, Jason and Amy just passed their five-year mark serving in official capacity with us. Uh, and Children's church director, uh, of CE, and Jason, of course, as uh, our minister of youth. And we appreciate you guys so much. You, you enrich us, no, they're not. They enrich us in so many areas, not just in those specific areas where they serve, but we appreciate you guys. All right, uh, we're going to be in the Word today. You can turn there if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Good to be back together with you and uh, reading through the Word and finding out what it has to say. We've spent some time now in prayer. We've spent time in giving. We have spent some time in worship by song. And now we'll spend some time in worship and reading and studying and applying the Word of God. God's plan for a healthy church is our study. The book of 1 Corinthians is our focus. We're in chapter 15, beginning of verse 35 is where we're going to pick up today. You can turn there if you'd like and uh, be prepared, maybe even read ahead a little bit. In December, we really embarked on this study, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We have used our time to uh, put this information in context. Uh, verses 1 through 11, resurrection reality, we just labeled it that way. The good news, the tomb is empty. The reality of the good news that the tomb is empty and that has so much Implication on all the rest of the chapter. A resurrection hope, that's deliverance from sin, that we could be delivered, that we will be delivered from our sin, and we aren't, of all people, uh, most miserable, but instead most joyful because of what the Lord has done. Resurrection authority over death, verses 21 through 28. Resurrection motivation to live and witness and endure, verses 29 through 34. We just finished last week. And we have allowed the text really to be our guide, showing us what we need to examine by topic. And you probably have noticed this now as we've worked our way through. So the text is our guide. We're working verse by verse, word by word, really through the text, and then allowing that to be our guide to show us what we need to examine by topic. And so doing that, we have begun to lay our foundation of understanding. And we saw in our study of how to get the most from your time in the word, and that's really how you need to approach that. Uh, we've spent a, a lot of time here because there's so much to assimilate. And I think if modern forms of Bible study that you can purchase have lacked anything, it is an assimilation of biblical truths that are really packed into sections of Scripture like we find in 1 Corinthians 15. You might find just a few pages that talk about 1 Corinthians 15 alone and don't really assimilate all the things they need to assimilate as it connects to so many other places in the Word of God. Really a broad, encompassing capacity to be interconnected to the different parts of the Bible and, and really the only way to get there is by repetitiously reading through the Bible and looking at what it says. What does it mean by what it says? Which means you're going to have to go other places besides just that one location and to help see if the words that you're understanding mean the same thing everywhere else. That's cutting a straight cut. Uh, because we are so used to reading here and there, this maybe becomes a little bit repetitious. Paul, of course, repeats himself many times just in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we go back over it, perhaps it seems to your ear, maybe falls on your ear that we're talking about it a lot, that Paul is, which means it's very important. It has connection to other parts of the Word of God, which means that we need to go there, and that's what we've tried to do. And I, I think as a culture in, in general, we're, we're used to reading pre-digested devotionals and really neglecting reading through the Bible on our own, which is really the only way to get the type of interlocking uh, knowledge that God wants his people to have, connected to the other parts of the Scripture. And so... Um, as we do that type of repetitious reading and we, and we connect the scriptures together, we really grow more acquainted with God's character. We grow more acquainted with his nature, uh, his consistency uh, in his instruction to us. We see them, the things repeated in different places, very similar to what we're looking at here. And we learn how the books he's preserved for us work together to weave a lot broader story than perhaps what we can read in one very small section of his redemption of man and, and his, our sure hope, uh, which is salvation and resurrection. And so, of course, the end of that is not just knowledge, but it's knowledge applied. And what does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? That is the discipline that God uses, beloved, catch this, to sanctify you. Okay? That's how you grow. That's how you change. That's how the Lord forms you. He renews your mind. It's that type of study. See, that's how, what he uses to sanctify you. Uh, he's going to use difficult people and difficult circumstances to bring you to his feet and seek him and teach you things, and then he's going to use this word to really sanctify you and purge you and change your mindset and the way you approach. And you can begin to see that's working in your life by your first reactions. So 
and you think back over this week perhaps or the month and your first reaction to something that was difficult or some person who was difficult or a situation that didn't work out like you thought it was going to work out and what was your first thought, maybe not necessarily your first comment, but what was your first thought, you'll begin to see how much of the word is working its way into renewing your mind. And so uh, that is where we want to go. That's where we've gone. That's one of some of the reasons why we've done what we've done and used the, te- the this, as we worked our way systematically through the text, use that to point us to topics that we need to look at in other portions of the Word of God. Now, if you would, look, at we, look with me in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. This is a new section, so we'll spend some time today introducing this section and getting a handle on the direction Paul's going to go, as is our habit. But let's read through the Word first, all the way through verse 49. So you're going to read starting in verse 35 through verse 49. Paul says this, but someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now, remember, Paul's topic specifically is addressing people who say the dead don't rise. So he's correcting bad theology in the church, and he's using a number of ways to do that, a number of points he's taking them through to do that. So, uh, again, in general, addressing that population of the Corinthian church and the modern church who say the dead don't rise. So he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Verse 38 or verse 36, rather. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, But there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. Verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. Verse 41. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, It is raised in imperishable body, verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power, verse 44. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit, verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural then the spiritual. Verse 47. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. Verse 48. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Let's stop right there. What a rich passage, is it not? Isn't it a joy just to read through it, even the first time perhaps in a while for you, but what a joy it is to read that as Paul begins to take them through what it's going to look like. What are the mechanics of the resurrection? What's the form? That really is his focus. He's talked about the sure nature of the resurrection. He's talked about of Christ's resurrection. He's talked about Christ is raised, and so you too will be. Christ the firstfruits and those who are Christ that is coming, and then all the impact of that 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 will actually bring about the end when Christ reappears again. That will bring about the end and all power and authority and dominion all brought into subjection to Christ, all, all the enemies of God brought under subjection and all turned over to God. We see all of the impact. Now he's coming back to the actual physical bodily resurrection. What is that going to look like? And so he goes at it then from that point. that We just call that resurrection transformation of our fleshly bodies. That's Paul's point here and he gives the uh, the important information for us to know. And as we've seen from our study, the understanding of the bodily resurrection is very basic to Christianity. I think as we've worked our way through, you can certainly see that, as, and Paul focuses on this in the first 34 verses of chapter 15, to really help us solidify for the Corinthian church, for the modern church, that Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. I think you, can't, you can come through that, you certainly come through uh, away with that, if nothing else. This is the fundamental element of, in Christian theology. Uh, whether we're looking at Job's statement in Job 19.23, where Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Verse 24, that with an, iron, with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. What is it, Job, you want to make sure that we know? Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will take his stand on the earth. 
Verse 26, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another, my heart faints within me. Oh, that I could make sure that no one ever forgets that, Job says, that I could stamp that in stone, I could write that in lead, that that would be passed on forever, that I know for sure my Redeemer lives, he will take his stand on the earth in the last day, and my eyes, my physical eyes, Job says, knowing he's speaking in, in the future, not knowing how far in the future, but knowing he's speaking in the future, knowing he's going to come to death, and even at that point in his life thought that that death might be very soon, he says, my eyes will see him and not another. My flesh shall see God. He was committed to, under, to, to making sure people knew that, and he knew that for sure. Or how about Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, what death is Jesus speaking of here? You know, those who are spiritually dead. The dead are hearing the voice of God, uh, voice of the Son of God. And those who hear, that would be to hear and to act on it, so to believe in Jesus for salvation. And those who hear will live. I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is. The dead are hearing, and they are believing, and they're going to live. Verse 25. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27. Uh, and, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of God. Not just those who are spiritually dead now, but there's going to come a time when all who are in the tombs, they're going to hear the voice. Now, what kind of death is that? That's physical death. So, firstly, speaking of spiritual death, they're going to hear the voice believe and live. Now, those who are in the tombs, physical death, they're going to hear, verse 29, and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. And again, not speaking that salvation is based on good deeds or evil deeds, but simply what? The fruit of salvation is good deeds, and the fruit of, of, uh, of wickedness is, and the fruit of uh, non-regeneration is evil deeds. Okay? Very common theme in scripture. Jesus said, right now, Spiritually dead are hearing the voice of God, and they're coming to life because they're believing. And there's a future time where they're, oh, those who are physically dead are going to hear the voice of God too, and they're going to come right out of the grave. So it's a very common theme in Scripture. The resurrection is very basic to Christianity. Physical bodily resurrection for both those who heard and believed in this life and are now dead, and physical bodily resurrection for those who would not hear and believe in this life and are now dead. Or Paul in Romans 8, 23. <coughs> And not only this, he says, and he's affirming that there's more to salvation than just coming alive spiritually. He says this, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our what? What's it say? The redemption of our, did I not put it up there? There it is, right before verse 24. What's the redemption he's waiting for? Our body, right? So the Holy Spirit was what? It was the first fruits, it was the down payment, it was the security deposit, if you will. It was the earnest money of what? A future bodily resurrection. Now, not only was the Holy Spirit the earnest money for that, it was the guarantee we did an inheritance, Ephesians says. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of a lot of things. But one of the things Paul says is, is that we ourselves have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. Why? Because we're still wrapped in this fleshly body, it still has its appetites, it wars against the true you, does it not? I mean, that is a constant battle, is it? Isn't it? I mean, if, you, if you're w trying to walk with the Lord, wrapped in this unregenerated flesh, there is a constant battle going on, because your new you is no longer in agreement with the appetites the body has. When you, before you were regenerated, and I've told you this many times, you were in complete harmony with yourself. You loved whatever it was your body wanted to do, and you had no problems doing whatever that was. Okay? But as soon as you came to faith, there's a new you that raised out of the grave with Christ, right? According to Romans chapter 6. And that new you that was raised is now at war with the body. And Paul says, we groan. Not only do we groan because we're at war with the appetites of the body, but just because this body is getting old. Right? And it was hard to get out of bed. It's hard to do the stuff you used to do and all that stuff. Okay? We groan. So we eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he's already saying? In other words, that hasn't happened yet. You've come to faith, you understand that, but there's this down payment of the Holy Spirit that is going to guarantee that you're going to, your body is going to be resurrected, and that's what we hope for, and we haven't seen yet, verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, 
With perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And that's where we are now, is it not? We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That's the exact position that we're in. So he confirms the first fruits of salvation is the giving of the Holy Spirit when a person comes to faith. But there's more. There's the redemption of the body. So very basic to Christianity, very fundamental to Christian theology is the resurrection of the body. Paul speaks of it in other terms in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this again is the way we connect the text to the actual topic. And so that's what we're doing now. Okay, so 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. It's a great passage. We're going to look at it in depth when we get there. But if we know that the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what's he talking about? So you're living in a, the illustration is a tent. Okay, but we have a house. Right now it's a tent. And when it's, uh, when it's torn down or you die, okay, that's the, that's the figure of speech. When this house is torn down, there's another one, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is Paul's metaphor for the physical body made for eternity. Now, verse 2. For indeed, in this house we groan. Again, the same word. Paul must have really been hurting at that point, you know, in his own life. We know that he was. And he longed not to be wrapped in flesh anymore, not to have that battle of, of Romans chapter 7 going on in his life constantly. And also he was older and he had trouble seeing and there was lots of stuff. He was just longing to be in the new body. Not a wrong thing to do. In fact, I think at, to the point that we are longing for the second kingdom, we'll look at this in a minute. I really do think that, that the point that we are at the, at the level we're longing for the second kingdom just makes us all, more, all the more effective here. See, if we're super at home here not longing for the second kingdom, we're not going to be really that effective here, are we? But if we know that there's a resurrection... If we know that there's a reward, if we know there's a time period coming where the Lord remembers what we've done and the sacrifices we've made and we're able to glorify him forever because of those things, if we know we've put put to death the deeds of the flesh and that's not lost on the Lord and he remembers all that stuff, see, that makes us much more effective here, doesn't it? But the more we're at home here, the less effective for the kingdom we're going to be. So Paul says, we groan. We're longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 3, we long for that. Do you long for that? Inasmuch as we have... As we, having put it on, will not be found naked. So, a believer's hope for eternity is not some ethereal spirit just kind of floating around in, all, you know, in, he- in the heavens. We're going to put on a body, all right? We're not going to be found, Paul's metaphors, naked, just kind of floating around like a spirit. We're going to have a body. And we're, Paul says we long for that. For indeed, verse 4, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And Paul just voices the we. He says, we groan because, you know, we have trouble with the tent that we live in now. And we long for what is, uh, we, we long for what is immortal uh, to be remade into, uh, what is mortal, rather, to be remade into what is an eternal body. Verse 5. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. So our longing for that second, that, for that first resurrection or the, the, the eternal body that's not something we put in ourselves. It's not something we came up with ourselves. The Lord puts the longing there. See, The Lord puts the longing there. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit, here it is, as a pledge. Again, right, with the Holy Spirit giving as a pledge. You long for this, this resurrection body? The Lord gave you that longing, and he gave you the Holy Spirit to guarantee that that's for sure going to be the deal. So there's this inseparable connection between our spirit and our body. God made us both here, catch this, beloved, and he will bring that to perfection at the resurrection of the just. He made a spirit embodied here, let's say it again, and he will bring that to perfection at the resurrection of the just. That is the guarantee the Holy Spirit brings to mind being with us. Do you understand? It is part and parcel. The Lord didn't make a mistake giving you a spirit and a body here, and he's going to correct that in heaven. You'll just be some spirit floating around. No. He's going to bring that to perfection, and you're going to have a resurrected body. And that's why it is just the, it is the continuous theme that we see all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. As Job very clearly said, with my eyes I will see, and in my flesh I will behold this thing. So, here Paul calls the Holy Spirit the pledge or assurance or first fruits that the resurrection and the transformation will come to pass. Now, all kinds of questions come up when we think that doctrine through, okay? Because... It has to do with the resurrection of a dead body. And a resurrection of a dead body is still the resurrection of a dead body. Okay? So we believe that by faith and we understand that to be true. But it's not surprising that there's some questions. Okay? And it's just, catch this, it's just as foreign to the natural thought to imagine anyone being resurrected from the dead as it is to try to comprehend Jesus being raised from the dead. Is it not? 
I mean, be real about that. If you're in the first century and you're, you're one of the followers of Jesus and you watched him be crucified, you watched his blood pour out on the ground, you watched the soldier poke the, the spirit to his side, you watched him take him down, and perhaps you were in that group that wrapped him and laid him in a tomb and closed it, it's going to be surreal for you to think about him raising. In fact, they were not expecting it. They didn't think to go to the tomb and find Jesus alive when they ran there in the morning, did they? The ladies came to do what? To put spices on the body so that it wouldn't stink. So let's just be real. It's just as hard for us to comprehend our body being raised as it is for the first century believers and for us to comprehend Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And so lots of questions come to mind, and, and some people think they found a real problem with Christian doctrine, uh, like some of the Corinthian church who said the dead don't rise. Because everyone's seen death and decay. And we know what it's like to see something dead along the road in the summertime. Okay? And we were rolling up our windows as soon as we see it coming up. So we understand that. And everyone, beloved, as hard as this is, has been exposed to the horrors of war and natural disaster, either by pictures or by actual experience. And we don't have to look very far to see Syrian civil war and understand that very clearly. Okay? We've seen that. And, you know, I was reading, I, I love history, and I was reading a few months ago about the Napoleonic War. And you probably think this is weird, you know, side reading. But it was a book about what the battlefields looked like after, after Napoleon would pass through. Um, and somewhere in the range, I just copied down a few, a few, top, uh, a few uh, uh, highlights of this. Somewhere in the range of 3.5 million to 6 million people died as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. Are you aware that that many people were impacted? And see, until I read the book, I wasn't. I mean, I knew there was a big impact, but I didn't realize it was that big of an impact. Now... That war, those wars lasted from 1803 to 1815. And those deaths include both military deaths and civilian casualties uh, as a result of the military. So that encompasses death from disease and, and other causes directly related to the war. Now, estimates of the number of soldiers killed in battle vary, and I'll tell you why in just a second, from 500,000 to almost 2 million soldiers killed. And the reason why it's unclear is because there was no real collection of any of them, or counting them. They were just left behind, and they were scavenged by everybody. So on any one battlefield, months after the battle, there'd be the most horrific and ghastly jumble of human remains. And of course, this is not new to human history. This has gone on since, uh, you know, since the fall. But during Napoleon's Russian campaign particularly, which is where I was reading, um, the remains lingered for months because of the cold temperatures, and this uh, French general... Philippe de Segur, described the scene of Borodino. It's 1812 battle. It's a retreat from Moscow. And they're coming back from Moscow. They are wa they're walking and riding. And all of a sudden, they find themselves in this field. And the field is horrific. It's about two months after the battle in this particular field. And on that spot lay, he said, 30,000 corpses of men and 5,000 corpses of horses. And he's quoted as saying, quote, it seems as though death had here fixed its throne, end quote. As they looked around, they were horrified because they were walking, all of a sudden they realized they're just in a big jumble of bones. Now, think about that, okay? Now think about resurrection. And think about the problems people are having. Okay, so in Europe now, approximately 25 million people died in just under five years between 1347 to 1352 as a result of the Black Plague. 25 million. In the Battle of Gettysburg, in just three days, July 1st through the 3rd, 1863, there were 7,863 soldiers killed, 3,100 Union, 4,700 Confederacy, in a big battlefield mess. Battle of Normandy, World War II, June 6th to August 30th, 1944, 29,204 U.S. soldiers alone in the Battle of Normandy. And of course, 6 million Jews, more than 6 million Jews killed by Hitler, with many, many millions cremated and buried in mass graves. On Sunday, December 6, 2004, an earthquake triggered a series of devastating tsunamis along the coast of most of Asia's land masses, bordering the Indian Ocean. 230,000 to 280,000 people in 14 countries perished. And here's the thing. I say that not to try to be depressing, because here's the thing. War and natural disaster and pestilence don't increase death. 10 out of 10 die. So there's no increase in death. It's just, it becomes very significant to us when a whole bunch of people die at the same time and are lost and not, not sorted out. I mean, just lost in a big jumble. See, and that's the issue. And all throughout the ages, people who doubt the resurrection 
they pose their questions in a mocking way. It's really like, so what will we have? The world's biggest jigsaw puzzle? You know, is the Lord just going to take this big cosmic rake over the earth and just kind of rake the bones out and, you know, just kind of start putting them together? You know, we'll see in a moment. That really is the attitude that Paul's addressing in the first sentences of our passage. He says this. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? See, that's the idea, because how do we know that they're mocking Paul? What's Paul's first answer after that? What's he say? Two words, you fool. Okay, so they're mocking Paul, and it's understandable in some respects, isn't it, from an unredeemed standpoint, if you don't believe what the Lord says, then you're going to say, you know, I mean, will my knee be collected, will my knee bone be collected to my leg bone, you know, for sure, or will it be, you know, somebody else's? Am I going to get all my parts back? And what about all the people who died in, in massive graves all over the place? See, are they getting all their parts back? And so they're mocking questions. And there's also some legitimate questions, right? Uh, people know what it's like for a body to rot away, so they, they have questions. Maybe you heard these. Here, here's one that I hear some, uh, some respects uh, often. Do you think it's okay to be cremated? What if I throw my ashes to the wind? Is that Okay. If I fly over this particular beach that I really like and dump out the ashes, is that, is that going to be okay? Is that all right? What if I'm blown up? What if I'm lost at sea? And what's the underlying worry, beloved? That's going to cause a problem with uh, resurrection, right? I mean, that's the underlying problem. Is it okay to be cremated? I mean, isn't that kind of saying to the Lord, you know, catch me if you can, you know. See if you can find all my parts. 100 million grains of ash everywhere, you know. But here's the thing, and I'm going to talk about this in just a minute and kind of support this with Scripture, but I believe that God can find all the right ashes. I don't believe being cremated has a problem with, there's no problem at all. And I'll tell you in just a minute why. And I believe that God can find all the right parts. And he knows where all the parts are. He formed us from the earth, beloved, or from a rib, depending on your gender. And of course, if you're not sure of your gender, ribby earth or whatever, okay? So he won't have a problem reforming parts for eternity, will he? Remember, God told Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, he said this, By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because, it, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return, beloved. Almost every run returns to the ground in some respect or another. And that statement doesn't preclude a resurrection. It's just a general observation, isn't it? It just gives the temporary state of the body until the resurrection. It may be earth. And that's even harder, it would think. I mean, earth. It's not just ash. It's kind of sitting everywhere. It's back to earth. You're just, you know, you're growing the plants. Right? But that's the normal state for everyone who's been dead for any length of time, see? And the only ones who are going to escape that are those who are raptured. See, we have some examples of that, don't we? So, and think about this, too. Orthodox Jews traditionally insist on a wooden coffin. You know why? They want to make sure that they fulfill that part of Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. They don't want anything to come between them and actually returning to the earth. In fact, they will refuse most of the time an autopsy unless the state requires it because they don't want anything interfering with the burial and the return to the earth. They feel that is the Lord's law. That's what's supposed to occur, and they don't want to inter interfere with that. See? So they've even taken it to you know, a very very far that way, saying we, we are to return to earth, that's what we need to do. So it's not unusual to wonder about people who've already died, and whether in, in the faith are, are the unredeemed, and, you know, what's going on there, see? What do they look like now, see? And we'll get to more of this later, but if you think about those who've already died now, not thinking just where their bodies went, but what about them? Look at Luke 16, 19. Will you do that? And you can make some notes here. This is a great cross-reference if you're Still in 1 Corinthians 15, just make a, a connection here, Luke 16, 19 through 31. It gives us some clues about what do they look like now. So, so their body has gone to the grave or blown up or, or, or cremated or whatever it is. Where are they now? Where's the spirit? And it, the Bible's not silent on it. It gives us, some, gives us some great passages that we can pull some clues out. I'm going to give you a few here today that hopefully will um, help you. Five, really, that we can pull out of Luke 16, 19. So if you're in your notes and you're a note taker, You'll see these, they're going to be illustrated here in just a minute. But Luke 16, 19, Jesus is teaching Luke, um, and here's the thing, too, I think about this beginning of this passage. 
Uh, Luke doesn't say, and he taught a parable saying. Luke doesn't say that. Because I don't think, and, and, and the reason why he doesn't say that is because I don't think this is a parable. I think that this is a story. Now, it's, it's doing the same thing as a parable would do, which is giving some kingdom information. But he doesn't say today he taught in a parable. He's teaching a story. He's giving some information. So he says this. Look at Luke 19. Now, there, were, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Now, there's not anything wrong with that, okay? Just so that you know, 1 Corinthians chapter seven or 6 tells us that, you know, that the Lord's given you everything richly to enjoy and to be rich in good works and willing to share. So nothing inherently wrong with being a rich man, okay, and living in splendor. And verse 20 says, and a poor man, I, I realize in our culture, perhaps that's wrong, okay? <laughs> if you're Bernie Sanders, fa- Bernie Sanders fan, it's a problem, okay? Oh, he's a rich man. There's the whole problem with the whole thing, okay? That's not it, all right? That's wrong. Now, verse 20, a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. Verse 21, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Verse 22, now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham's bosom, that name is only used here in the New Testament, but is the name that refers to heaven. Okay, so when you see that, think about heaven. It's the name that the Pharisees would have been familiar with. It's the name used in their body of tradition teaching about heaven called the Talmud. So in the Talmud, Abraham's bosom is heaven. So Jesus is teaching, and the Pharisees are there, so he uses a term they're very familiar with, but don't let that confuse you as if that's some extra place. Okay? There's one place. It is the place of heaven. It's the place where the Lord is. And in particular, he says, Abraham's bosom, and we know that Abraham is there. Okay? So not hard to understand. And the rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23 Now, in Hades, so he's not in the same place as the poor man, okay? In Hades, now that's the name referring to the place of the unbelieving dead, and that's where they're kept until judgment. It's the same word Paul's going to use later in 1 Corinthians when death and Hades are emptied into the lake of fire. So this is not an unusual term. We understand it, okay? So in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom, so he's reclining, Lazarus is is uh, enjoying perhaps a meal or some, something ref- for refreshment of some kind. He's enjoying the fellowship that comes uh, from the saints. And so he's enjoying himself. Verse 24, and he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am a- in agony in this flame. Here's the first thing we can understand from that. And there's others just taking, really gleaning the, the major things. First, whatever body the dead may have, prior to the first and second resurrection. And you understand that terminology now because we've gone through it, right? First resurrection is the resurrection of the just. Second resurrection is the resurrection of the unjust. And both of those are still in the future, okay? So whatever body the dead may have, and we have an example of both. We have, the resu- we have someone who will be part of the resurrection of the just, and that would be Lazarus. And we have somebody who would be part of the resurrection of the unjust, and that would be the rich man. So both of them are here, okay? So whatever body they may have, prior to the first and second resurrection, they appear to be recognizable. So, in other words, the rich man is laying there. He sees Abraham and recognizes him, and he sees Lazarus and recognizes him. So, this temporary form, whatever it is, so as you're thinking about, okay, when the body dies, uh, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord at that point. What does that look like? Well, obviously, obviously we don't know exactly a temporary body of some kind, but it is recognizable. So, He looks up and he sees somebody that he knows. And two, they obviously have a desire to at least drink because the rich man wants a drink right now where he is. So they have a desire to drink. So that body in some way feels thirst and heat and discomfort for for the rich man. And, of course, Lazarus is reclining and, and in comfort. And obviously there's some... Something there close by that he wants him to dip his finger in and give to him. Okay, so, so first of all, the body's recognizable. Secondly, there's at least a desire to perhaps eat and perhaps drink. So we know the eternal body of the redeemed is going to eat, right? I mean, the eternal body of the first resurrection, you're going to for sure eat at what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. So you're for sure going to eat. There's going to be a desire to eat. Maybe there's no possibility of ever putting on weight. That would be super great, wouldn't it? I mean, you could have the nice things that you'd like to eat and, you know, don't have to worry about getting on the treadmill the next day or whatever, right? To try to get rid of our man's bodies. So, verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here, 
and you're in agony. Now, this, this isn't a just reward for everyone who's rich in this life. Uh, kind of Bernie Sanders posthumous redistribution of wealth or whatever, okay? It's not that. The social status of the individual here didn't determine their future location, did it? No. The social status did not determine the future location. It never determines the future location. What determines the future location? Either a relationship with Christ or the absence of a relationship with Christ. Trusting God for salvation or turning away from the salvation God provides. That's the only thing that determines your future destination. So obviously, uh, even though this rich man was rich and had plenty of stuff, to take care of his needs, and, and Lazarus did not, that didn't determine their final location. What determined their final location was the disposition of their own soul and what they did with the salvation God offered. Okay? So just clear that up, and that, of course, doesn't say that here, but we understand that to be true. Okay? Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over here from there, oh, come over here, those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So third thing we can know is nothing can be done about the final location of either individual. Once the physical life is ended, their locations then, and the separation between the two remain permanent, and no crossover ministry is done from those who are in heaven to those who are in hell. And no benefit's going to be received from those who are in hell from those who are in heaven. Okay? Verse 27, And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send to him, my, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, verse 28, in order that he may warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Fourth thing we can see, that even the unredeemed understand God's power of resurrection, don't they? So just resurrect Lazarus, send him on back to my house, and have him talk to my brothers. That isn't even a question. Could you please resurrect him? Do you know how to resurrect him? Will he be resurrected isn't the thing. Just send him back. So even the unredeemed, who are currently in torment, understand God's power of resurrection. All that's going to be clear to them, beloved. Make no, you, know, you don't have to make any bones about this. When they get to their place, if they have rejected Christ, they will understand clearly, I believe, that they have been deceived. I don't think the demons will miss a chance to make sure they understand that very thing. That they were stupid enough to believe that there wasn't a God and there was never going to be any accountability. That they could be that gullible. I, I really think that's part of the whole sorrow and the whole gnashing of teeth and the, and the frustration that will be part of how could I have been so stupid as to reject the salvation of the Lord. So I don't think that that's even a question. So, even the unredeemed understand God's power of resurrection. Look at verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The same word that you heard, the same word that Lazarus heard, is the same word that's still giving God, uh, showing God to be the one who saves. Let them listen. If they listen, they'll understand, they can perhaps understand. Verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. In other words, they're not going to hear the word. I didn't hear the word. I know they're not going to listen. But if you send somebody there who's been resurrected, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So, let me flip back over 1 Corinthians 15 if you like. So there appears to be a body prior to the first and second resurrection of some kind. Perhaps a spiritual body, but it's recognizable. Perhaps some phys- there has to be some physical qualities in it because it desires to drink and for cert- certainly perhaps to eat. So, it's recognizable, has similar desires. And then this fifth one, it's a temporary body. Okay? Now, that doesn't say it specifically here, but we know this is a temporary body. Why? Because in the first resurrection, all those who have died in Christ or in salvation will be raised. So it's temporary and given a physical body. And we also know that all those who have died in their sin, according to Revelation we looked at in verse chapter 20, will be resurrected from wherever they are. The depths of the sea will give them up. Everybody, everybody sort it out. Not the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle. Hope you got the right part. For sure find you, no matter what happened to you, you will be put back together and you'll be given a body. The unredeemed will be given a body fit for eternity. It will last for all eternity in torment. So these are temporary bodies. So whatever they are, they have those, perhaps those qualities and they are temporary. They're gonna, we're going to receive physical bodies uh, that will be the perfection of what the Lord intended here, okay? And I think we can say with confidence, regardless of what happens to that physical body then at death, or after death, rather, 
if the Lord can form a man from earth, he can find all the parts, and everyone can say with Job, whether they want to or not, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and with my eyes I will see and not another. Everybody can say that with confidence. We understand that to be true. Okay? So there's always been questions, and Paul has spent his first 34 verses really verifying the reality of the bodily resurrection. And so, beginning in verse 30, 35, he turns his attention to the nature of the resurrected body. Now remember, our context, although we have found wonderful encouragement in Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church, Paul is directing his comments towards those who are denying the resurrection. So these comments are focused on them, and the same is true here. And that will explain Paul's comment here. Let's look at the first couple of verses. Let's pick up in verse, um, verse 35, if you would. Okay, verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now, these questions, judging from Paul's initial response, are coming from mockers. They're coming from mockers. And if you talk about the resurrection of Christ, you will attract mockers like, you know, flies to something dead. Okay, if you, if you have, if your PhD is in the resurrection, you're going to, you're going to attract, and, and I know that um, Jerry won't mind me saying this, he attracts mockers uh, just like flies to anything that stinks. I mean, every time he posts something, he'll have 15 people who will mock him. And he is, he's uh, spent his life studying the resurrection and uh, all those facts around the resurrection. And so he just attracts them. Why? Because people mock that. They think that's ridiculous because they've never experienced anything except death and decay. And so, um, like we said before, some in Corinth had eventually ridiculed the idea of um, resurrection by asking questions about the nature of the body with which people would rise. Um, and I said, Jared, it's Ben Shaw, I'm sorry. Ben Shaw is the one who's, who's been studying. In, in response to Paul's teaching, something like, sure, sure they do, sure they rise, you know? Uh, how can people possibly rise when their bodies are completely rotted away? You know, and we have the same kind of mockery that, that today in our day. So sure, okay, maybe a zombie apocalypse or something like that, right? That's how they're going to rise. They'd just be, you know, rising up from the dead, you know, walking around. There's plenty of movies that help you with your imagination. So maybe it's that, okay? But that's not it. And Jesus even had to deal with the type of mockery that Paul is dealing with in, uh, in Mark chapter um, 12, verse 18. Uh, some of the Sadducees, now, and then in parentheses, the writer tells us who say there's no resurrection. Now, I remember one of my professors in the seminary who said, that's why they're so sad, you see, because they don't, it's, I know, it's, it's corny. Okay, so I thought it was corny then. I don't know why I said it just now. So Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. So Mark sets the stage here, okay, um, so some Sadducees came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother but dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to her brother. And that's um, Kinsman uh, Redeemer. Okay, that's, it's coming, 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 coming to the uh, aid uh, of, of someone who's lost their husband, so they may have children. Okay, verse 21. Um, there... Verse 20, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. Verse 21, the second one married her and died, behind, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. Verse 22, and all, so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And you can hear them, okay, it's like, we got you now, right? If there's a resurrection... I mean, there's going to be big marital problems in heaven, big fist fights, all right? Everybody was married to her, now they're all together in one place. Everybody's resurrected. So, you know, I think what they really should have been wondering about is why all the brothers ended up dead. That's what I think they really should have been asking about, okay? I mean, don't eat the knish, you know? The matzo balls have a weird, funny aftertaste. Don't eat those. You know, whatever. They should have been asking that question, okay? Seven brothers, one woman, the woman lives, all the brothers are dead, okay? That's the question that would have popped in my mind first. Why are all these guys dying? Okay, but they think they've got Jesus, you know, in trouble. He's in a corner, in their opinion, okay? Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? So, in other words, he's he's like, you're mistaken, and here's the reason. You don't understand the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God, okay? Well, I'm not going to get into you about the whole wives and, you know, the wife and all the brothers. Listen, you're just mistaken, Okay? What's he mean? Well, the scriptures are full of references to the resurrection. And God has the power and the authority to raise the dead and judge them according to their deeds. And he's given that authority to Jesus. So, listen, you just don't understand the the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, verse 25, 
When they rise from the dead, so Jesus doesn't say, if the dead rise from the grave, or perhaps if they come back. He says, for when they rise, see, when they do, then Jesus gives us important information for those in the first resurrection. So he says this, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So, another thing we can know, you know, and you can throw this in your notes if you want to, marriage was given by God to provide companionship and perpetuate the human race and to illustrate the relationship between God and his people and Christ in the church. So those three things, marriage was given for those three things, okay? And, but, so, Jesus says, for they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So, from a companionship perspective, everyone will have a perfect, fulfilling spiritual relationship with everyone else, see? Like the holy angels do now, and everyone will be like the angels in that they'll be eternal, spiritual beings, and they don't die. And so you're going to be like the angels. And so those reasons for marriage will no longer exist. And so marriage isn't going to exist any longer. So he says, listen, when the dead rise, this is how it's going to be. That's the first resurrection. Because people in hell aren't going to be worried about whether they're going to be married or not. Okay? But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac? And the God of Jacob, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're greatly mistaken. In other words, it's important what the language says. It's important the tense. Because I am the God of this person who is still alive. So, Jesus had to deal with mockers. He had to deal with people backing him into a corner. Paul's dealing with mockers. If you proclaim Christ resurrected, you're going to be dealing with mockers all your life. If you tell people that, you know, this life is not all there is, that there is an eternal life coming. This is a temporary shadow of what's to come. But what you do here determines what, where you'll spend that eternity. People are going to mock you. So verse 35 says this, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? Or what kind of body do they come? So Paul keeps firing away on the fact that there, there's going to be a resurrection, but they weren't interested. They'll just say, okay, Paul, you know, how are they going to get out of the ground? What kind of body would rise from a heap of decomposed rubbish? What's that going to look like? So, how are the dead raised? Let's talk about the mechanics of the process, okay? We're going to stop right here because we're out of time, and I've spent way too long illustrating other things that we'll have to pick up here next week, all right? So, two things here that we can see, and we'll pick up right here next time, all right? And number two, with what kind of body do they come? So, this mocking question really comes with, is what form will they have? So, first of all, what's the mechanics? So, how are they going to get out of the ground, okay? How are they going to get all put back together? What's the mechanics of it? How are the dead raised? And what kind of body? What will the person look like? That's the question. What is that going to look like? I mean, they're completely decomposed. How is that going to look when they come up out? Okay? And that's right where these critics were. See, they think this is some kind of joke. And they think, you know, you mean God's going to go over all the debris of the earth, you know, the debris of the earth, and, and you're sorting out what goes where. You know, and there's no way anyone can do that. Even if he would do it, that's a, what's the final product going to look like? Yuck. How ridiculous is that, Paul? That's precisely the... The attitude that's coming here, all right? That's precisely the attitude you'll deal with as you talk about the resurrection, the resurrection of, of life and the resurrection of death, which you'll talk about, that's what you'll get when you talk about the resurrection of Christ. You'll get mockers. Paul's dealing with mockers, so I think it gives us a good way to respond. And Paul's going to give this marvelous explanation, and you're going to really, I think, really enjoy it, be enriched uh, as we look at it next week. Let's just close the prayer. We're done today. And uh, we will pick up here next time, Lord willing. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for uh, your blessing of salvation to us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your provision of your son and his substitutionary death on the cross. We are so grateful, too, for being reminded of the power of the resurrection, to conquer sin and cancel it for those who believe, to, uh, to proclaim in power that your son is who he said he was. He claims the throne. He deserves the throne. He gets the throne, and all judgment is given to him. And our comfort comes in Romans 8, where the one who died is also the one who judges. How, what will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. But for those who mock the resurrection, for those who mock Christ's resurrection and the, the future resurrection of all who've ever lived, um, what waits for them? Horror. Horror. And mocking from the demons of how could they be so stupid as to believe that there was no God and no resurrection, even though he clearly said it, even though it was, the, it was foundational to Christian theology. How could you dismiss it? And so, Father, I pray 
Isn't he a savior today? He would fall into that second category of, of mocking the resurrection, not believing Christ rose. Lord, help him, first of all, to be convicted and, and uh, terrified of the future reality that will be there. If you remain in your sin, and God in his sovereignty understood that your sin required the death of Christ, and he came and died and rose, where does that leave you? It leaves you with an eternity in hell, paying for your own sin. You need to meet Christ now as the one who makes intercession for you and has died on the cross for you and is your Savior and will come and dwell with you. Or you can meet him later as your judge, where nothing can be done to mitigate your circumstances because it was all done before. And you could have incorporated it. Incorporate it now. Confess your sin now, Jesus says, Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. From what? Well, first of all, from the destruction that you deserve and all of us who live deserved. Christ took that upon himself. Be saved from all the foolish mistakes and things that will happen that you could make in the future because you'll have the Holy Spirit there with you as a mediator guiding you through this life. You'll have the word of God which you can understand. It can help you live really to the fullest. In John 10, Jesus, 10, 10, Jesus said, I've come and might have life and have it abundantly. That's your life. That's what you can have. If you confess Jesus today as Lord or over the last just couple weeks as we've talked about this, let us know. Take a card from this pew in front of you. Respond that way, please. Let us know what happened. Let us know what you'd like uh, to know more of. We would, lo- we would be our joy to help you grow, uh, to disciple you in the things that the Scripture says. Lord, thank you for the joy that we have as we rejoice in all that you've done for us and the security of our salvation. You can save forever those who simply trust in Jesus. And we give you praise today for the time to come where we'll enjoy a meal together, Acts 2.46, time of fellowship. Lord, I pray that you'll draw us together for that, that we might encourage one another, bless one another, build one another up, do all the one another things that we can do in fellowship. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.